Hey everyone! First off, we at the Familiar Strange wish to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast, and whose cultures are among the oldest living cultures in human history. I am recording from the Ngunnawal and Ngambri country, and would like to pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. And I'm Lisa Wynn, and I am currently sitting on the land of the Watamadigal clan of the Darug Nation, and I want to pay my respects to past and present and emerging elders and leaders and to any Indigenous people listening to this today. We acknowledge and respect the culture's heritage, beliefs, and recognize the continuing sovereignties of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to the Familiar Strange. I am Claire, your Familiar Stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Lisa Wynn. Lisa is a professor in the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. She received her PhD in 2003 from the Princeton University's Anthropology Department, then held two postdoc research positions at Princeton's Office of Population Research and Center for Health and Wellbeing. She has conducted fieldwork in Egypt since 1998. With a focus on tourism, gender, reproductive health technologies, sexuality, and religion, she also conducts research in Australia on ethics review bureaucracies and on lay understandings of infectious disease. She has served on the editorial boards of Maternal and Child Health Journal and Contraception, and is associate editor of the journal American Ethnologist, starting in 2022. She has served as president of the Australian Anthropological Society and on the AAAS Executive Committee. She is the author of two monographs, the co-editor of three edited books, and has published several dozen book chapters and journal articles. Today, we talked about Lisa's research on sexual and reproductive health technologies in the United States, as well as in the Middle East and North Africa. We focused on emergency contraceptives and unpacked the arguments both for and against making them available over the counter in America. Lisa took a deep dive into how the activism for the expanded access to emergency contraceptives has created a hierarchy of deservedness that prioritizes specific groups above others, diverting public attention away from the universal human rights discourse. We then turned to Egypt where Lisa has done long-term ethnographic fieldwork on sexuality and dived into a particular sexual technology, hymenoplasty, or hymen reconstruction procedures. Lisa shared with us a fascinating story of how people used it as a tactic to circumvent or subvert cultural norms and build social respectability. We also touched on the unexpectedly diverging opinions on hymenoplasty from religious authorities 
doctors, and lay people. This podcast contains themes and topics that may be distressing or graphic for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chat group? Join us on the familiar strange chat on Facebook and provide some valuable insights into today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Professor Lisa Wynn. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. You have done extensive research on sexual and reproductive health technologies in the United States and the Middle East and North Africa region. In the light of the recent development in the U.S., where the Supreme Court is poised to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling, your studies are especially relevant and critical now as they sit at such a historical juncture. Could you please share with us an overview of your research on emergency contraception and medication abortion? Sure. Well, in general, as you mentioned, Claire, I'm interested in sexual and reproductive health technologies, which just means any techniques, substances, etc., that people use to manage their reproductive and sexual health. And so that can range from very simple technologies to really elaborate surgical procedures, for example. But I'm really interested in pharmaceutical technologies. And in general, I'm interested in new and emerging technologies because whenever something new comes out, it triggers debates about it in society. So I started paying attention to this in the early 2000s in the United States when the country was debating whether to make emergency contraceptive pills available over the counter. So emergency contraceptive pills are just regular oral contraceptive pills, the kind that people take every day to prevent pregnancy, but you can take them after sexual intercourse to prevent pregnancy, but you take them in higher doses. Or you can also insert an intrauterine device, an IUD, with the same results. It's not totally effective. It's not nearly as effective as taking a pill every day or having an IUD in before you have sex, but it's really an important element in an array of possible technologies that people can use to prevent pregnancy, right? So this wasn't a new technology by any means in the 2000s when it came out. I mean, doctors had been prescribing high doses of oral contraceptive pills, mainly to university students ever since the about the 1960s, mostly in the US, also in Europe. Uh, so doctors had been prescribing this basically to people who had come to the, the health clinics at the universities back in a time when abortion was still illegal and there were really strong norms against single parenthood, right? And so people would show up at the clinics and say, you know, like, I had unprotected sex, I cannot afford to get pregnant. And the doctors would give out these pills. And so sometimes it was just people who had had consensual sex. Sometimes it was people who had been sexually assaulted. And, and so it was, you know, for decades it was around, but it was a kind of a do-it-yourself technology where the doctors would take a, a pack of regular monthly oral contraceptive pills and cut them up and say, take four now, take four in 24 hours or something. So it was proven to be fairly effective, but it took a really long time before 
it actually came on the market as what we would call a dedicated product. So that's a product where you've got the pill like packaged and marketed for a specific use. And so that's important just because it normalizes the use. You know, it tells people, hey, this is okay. The FDA or in Australia, the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, you know, they've approved this. They've said it's safe. You can use it. So emergency contraception is, in fact, extremely safe. There are not even any recorded cases of anybody even being sent to the emergency room from taking it. So it's actually safer than many over-the-counter medications that we take on a regular basis, like that everybody takes regularly, like paracetamol, for example, right? So it's safer by any way of measuring that. And yet there was so much controversy when uh, they wanted to make it go over the counter. And when I say they, it was actually the FDA that proposed to the pharmaceutical companies that they take the step to first register the drug and then the pharmaceutical company applied to make it go over the counter. And, you know, everybody in the emergency contraceptive activism world, which I was following, everybody thought it was going to be a slam dunk, right? Because it was very safe and it was documented to be effective, not super effective, but, you know, it's better than nothing if you're trying to prevent a pregnancy. And, and when you're calculating risks, so carrying a pregnancy to term is always more dangerous than getting pregnant and having an abortion, which is more dangerous than not getting pregnant at all. Just, you know, if you're calculating a hierarchy of risks, which of course public health people like to do, by that measure, it was also a good idea to make this available because if you have fewer pregnancies, then it means you're going to have fewer abortions which is good from a public health perspective, not to mention that you would think that it would satisfy the people who are anti-abortion, right? But in fact, there was a tremendous amount of opposition to making this pill available. And some of it was because they didn't understand what it was. A lot of people thought that emergency contraception, because you take it after sex instead of before sex, a lot of people thought that it was the same as medication abortion. Medication abortion, in fact, is a completely different technology, drug, et cetera. You know, there's, there's three different drugs that can be used, uh, mifepristone, misoprostol, methotrexate. Usually what's most commonly used is a mix of mifepristone and misoprostol. And emergency contraception does not work if you're pregnant. Like it will have no effect, except you might feel nauseous or something, but you know, it won't have any effect on the, on the pregnancy, whereas medication abortion does. So I started looking at these technologies because when people started debating them in public, you know, whether we should make this pill available over the counter, whether we should legalize medication abortion, which is another topic I've been looking at, you know, it really brings to the forefront how people think about people's bodies, about reproduction, about when life begins, about who has the right to decide when life begins and who has the right to end life, uh, who has the right to tell people what they can do with their bodies. No, I'm saying people, not women. I mean, even if it's mostly women who use emergency contraception, medication, abortion, it's not only, right? Who has the right to decide all of these things. And a lot of the discussion is around, you know, is it the government? Is it a person who is pregnant or who fears getting pregnant? Is it um, a medical professional? So those things are all really interesting for anthropologists to think about because of course, reproduction, sexuality, the beginning of life, these are all some of the most 
heavily moralized areas in society. And so whenever you have a new technology coming out, all that debate really makes visible a lot of unspoken assumptions in society about all those things. Let's unpack the debate about whether to make emergency contraceptives available over the counter you just mentioned. What are the unspoken assumptions underlying some of the arguments here? This was really interesting when they were debating the, avail the availability of emergency contraception. First of all, there were a lot of people who were against making it available over the counter, and that was actually really true here in Australia. So in the United States, just about every organized medical association from the AMA to like the, the medical associations for pediatrics and adolescent medicine, they were all in favor of making this pill available over the counter. And for the reasons that I described, you know, the idea that people should have the right to control whether they get pregnant or not, and these things were safe and so on. But here in Australia, interestingly enough, the major medical organizations opposed making this pill available over the counter. They were overridden and it now is available from a pharmacist without prescription, but they opposed it. And so one of the arguments from people in the United States, and this was an argument that was prevalent here in Australia too, was that, okay, sure, maybe women or people need to take this, but they should take it after they have a conversation with their medical professionals about it. This basically, this assumption that it's not people alone who should be making the decision about their reproduction, but they should have that conversation with experts, right? Like an expert who can tell them more about their body and about their risks and about what they should be doing um, in terms of regular contraception. I mean, to be fair, in Australia, the argument was really around trying to grab a captive population of people to educate them. So the argument was along these lines. Okay, emergency contraception is not, it's not very effective. It's not nearly as effective as any other ongoing method of contraception, whether it's the pill or the IUD or even condoms or withdrawal, right? And so if a person is taking emergency contraception, then they need to know about what is a safer, more effective contraceptive option. So if we keep this pill available only by prescription, and not you know, for anybody to access at any time, then that ensures that the doctor will be able to educate people about ongoing contraceptive options. Okay, so that assumption to me is really interesting. First of all, probably because <laughs> on some level it's personal because you know, I just really hate the idea that there's some expert who thinks that they can like give me a lecture about what I should be doing, you know. But beyond that, it assumes that people have the capacity to get to a doctor, that they can access a doctor fast enough to get a prescription so that they can take this pill. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that really swayed both the TGA and the FDA in their deliberations was the fact that the sooner you take emergency contraception after sex, the more effective it is. So there's like a steady drop in effectiveness, the longer it takes for you to actually get that pill. So this came out a lot in the debates in the United States is people would say, 
if I have sex Friday night and I can't get to a doctor until Monday morning to get a prescription, then I've almost passed the window of effectiveness. Now in Australia, of course, it's different because healthcare is so much better here. I mean, it's more accessible, it's cheaper than in the United States. In the United States, people are saying, not only do I have to wait until Monday to get an appointment, but you know, if I don't have insurance, it might cost me $150. And then on top of that, I'm going to have to pay $30 or $40 to get this pill. I can afford that. You know? And the people who are most at risk of unintended pregnancies tend to be poorer people too. The same people who can't afford to go to the doctor, who can't take time off work to go to the doctor, never mind the cost of the doctor's appointment. So there were all these assumptions about People who have infinite amounts of time and willingness to go consult with a medical professional and talk about the details of their sex lives with their doctors, and also the idea that doctors are these benevolent beings who are going to, you know, make everything good and not, in fact, make people feel really uncomfortable and invaded and, and so on, you know, when they ask questions or when they deliver a lecture about somebody's sexuality. So those were some of the assumptions. You have shared the assumptions from the doctors in the debate, but what about the people, especially women, who advocated for expanded access to emergency contraceptives? How did their arguments play out? Okay, well, this is something that was really interesting that came out. I'm talking about the FDA hearings to make emergency contraception available over the counter. But what I'm saying applies to a lot of things, a lot of pharmaceutical products. You see some of the same debates around access to abortion. Okay, so the structure of the FDA hearings is first, they have all these experts like doctors and stuff speak, public health professionals and so on. They speak to the standing committees who are meeting to make the decision about the drug, but then they open it up to the public. And so anybody who has registered in advance can make a submission. They can basically talk for three minutes at that hearing to make a case. And so all of these people from the National Organization of Women uh, had organized to speak in favor of making emergency contraception available without a prescription. And so each of them stood up and they were trying to unsettle this idea of an expert opinion and who has the right to make that decision. And so all of them described their own concrete experiences of trying to get emergency contraception when they needed it. And some of them would talk about like how expensive it was or how hard it was to find a doctor and, and things like that. But basically all of them were saying, this is my experience. And that makes me an expert because I know what it's like to be terribly afraid of getting pregnant and to need this drug and not and to not be able to get it. And so I did a little tally. I think there were eight of them who spoke. The majority of them described having sex with a partner, either like a, most of them either talked about a fiance or their husbands, right? So they described themselves basically as responsible people. Oh, and most of them described using a condom and having the condom break. So they're basically setting themselves up as, look at me, I'm a super responsible person in a committed relationship, and this could even happen to me. So how is this going to affect other people? It was basically to try to counteract this idea that we need to be able to grab this captive population of women in need of this drug so that we can educate them. But 
What about all of those people who have sex, you know, just for fun with somebody who they barely know or don't know, you know, one night stand who embrace their sexuality? And, and what about all those people who have sex while they're drunk or high and then afterwards realize that they desperately need contraception, right? So those are not the people that the pro-emergency contraception activists want you to be thinking about right? Because those kinds of people evoke a chaotic, undisciplined uh, sexuality that needs to be contained and trained and educated and and disciplined into responsible decision-making, right? So it set up a kind of a hierarchy of deservedness. Another hierarchy of deservedness that we see um, frequently in these debates is around sexual violence, A lot of the people who are advocating for access to emergency contraception, and you see this too with advocates for access, expanded access to abortion, including medication abortion, abortion pills, is they'll say, you know, they'll talk about the survivors of sexual violence or of incest. Well, it is absolutely true that the survivors of sexual violence or incest need to have access to whatever technologies, you know, they can get to, to be able to control their reproduction. But what's implicit in that is that they somehow deserve it more than anybody else, right? They deserve everything, but also everybody deserves to be able to control their reproduction and say like, no, I don't want to get pregnant. I'm not ready to get pregnant. And so it's kind of dangerous. It's a, it's a kind of a catch 22, because on the one hand, to use the figure figure of the sexual assault or incest survivor is very emotive. And so activists love to deploy these images. Like what about, what about this vulnerable person who has suffered this terrible violence, right? Like they deserve to have access to this. Okay. We can't dispute that. But when you use that figure, it kind of draws people's attention away from the fact that everybody should have access to this. And it makes it seem like it's something special that should only be reserved for people in extraordinarily difficult circumstances, as opposed to something that should be mundane and accessible to everybody. So that's what I mean when I talk about hierarchies of deservedness. We create these archetypes in, and you can see this in almost all activism, right? You create this archetype of somebody who you think will be particularly sympathetic to the public. But in doing that, you actually may be creating the conditions for lessening people's sympathy for others. So it may end up excluding people who are going through some other scenarios and equally deserve bodily autonomy or access to emergency contraceptives as a human right. That's exactly right. Or people who may not want to, you know, who may have been sexually assaulted, but don't want to have to talk about that with their doctors. That's a scenario. There are plenty of people who don't want to report it and who don't want to talk about it with the doctors, or maybe they want to talk about it down the line or something. But right away, what they want is this drug and they should be able to access it without having to go through all of these layers of authority to get it. Similar rhetoric is still being used in today's debate around abortion. While people are now very vocal about women's bodily autonomy and social justice, the needs of rape and sexual assault survivors to access abortion are still primarily highlighted by pro-choice advocates to mobilize sympathy and support. 
That's right. And I can understand why they do it because they have to, well, I think because people respond to stories. And so when you can tell a story that's compelling, that helps to create an affective response that, that can help you get, you know, supporters to your cause. Right. And a story about somebody who gets drunk and goes out and has like a one night stand, like that's not a particularly compelling story for eliciting sympathy in people, right? That elicits all kinds of judgment. And so I can see why the activists do it. And I've done it myself, you know, but we have to stop and reflect on who that might be writing out of the picture, I guess. Now let's turn to a different part of the world. You have conducted extensive fieldwork in Egypt and co-edited the book called Abortion Pills Test Tube Babies and Sex Toys, Exploring Reproductive and Sexual Technologies in the Middle East and North Africa. So is there accessibility to such technologies any different from the US and Australia? Yeah, look, it's pretty different, but it's probably not nearly as different as people think. First of all, whenever you approach writing about sexuality and reproduction in the Middle East, you have to contend with all of these stereotypes that everybody has about Middle Easterners being sexually repressed and coercive and so on. But I mean, the reality is that in so many countries, it's not what the average American or Australian imagines. So for example, in Egypt, really careful research has shown that the rate of abortion, induced abortions in Egypt is about the same as the rate of induced abortions in the United States. First of all, there's a lot of people who get access to legal abortions. So it's harder to get an abortion there than it is to get an abortion in some states of the United States, for example. But you can get legal abortions. You just have to jump through a number of hoops to demonstrate that there's a danger to the woman's health or some problem with the fetus, for example. And a lot of people do jump through those hoops, but also a lot of people get illegal abortions from doctors. Those are widely available, although nobody really wants to talk about that. So the fact is that people are doing what they need to do. They're finding ways around it, just like I'm sure we're going to see happening in the United States after you know, Roe v. Wade gets overturned, which I hope won't happen, but really is looking like we're heading down that direction. So it's not nearly as different as you'd think, but it's radically different in different places. Well, first of all, across the Middle East, you can get emergency contraception and oral contraceptive pills really easily, actually. It's widely accessible. Um, abortion, access to abortion is really uneven. In some countries, it's quite difficult to get. But even so, you know, if you have money, you can almost always get something, including an abortion. But then you have like Tunisia, where abortion has been legal for decades. So it's really uneven. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that's interesting is using the lens of a technology. And we cover mm -hmm. all different technologies, not just emergency contraception and abortion, but things like in vitro fertilization and gamete donation and things like that. I mean, we even have a chapter looking at dildos, right, as a sexual technology. So when you look at the histories of these technologies in the different countries, you see that there's enormous variability and it has a lot to do with the politics, the strength 
of different religious communities and the relationship between religious communities and political authorities, the history of colonialism, and, you know, in many cases, uh, English and French colonialism really shaped and limited people's access to reproductive and sexual health technologies in the Middle East, because the colonizers were very often much more conservative and more restrictive toward women than those countries were originally before they were colonized. So they've had like a long lasting impact on the laws in those countries and the way abortion gets defined and when it's determined that you can and can't get an abortion. I mean, in most schools of Islamic jurisprudence, most of them say that abortion is acceptable before a certain stage. And there's differences over whether it's, you know, before four months when the woman can feel the fetus moving inside her, or if it's in the first 30 days or, and so on. Um, there's a lot of difference around that. But what these colonial legal systems did is they came in and they kind of quashed all of that variability and they just said, nope, no abortion. And same with things like sex work and, and so on. So colonial history really affects a lot of this. How about the people there? How do they respond to the accessibility or inaccessibility of these sexual and reproductive technologies? Yeah, I guess one of the most exciting things was looking at the ways that people make do, I guess the tactics that people living on the margins, like sex workers, gay folks, trans folks, or even just unmarried men and women mm -hmm. who want to have heteronormative sex outside of marriage, the ways that they get around social rules and still survive and thrive, you know, while pursuing their own projects of pleasure. That was one of the things we wanted to look at. And we wanted to look at it away from this kind of public health lens that tends to dominate the discussions of sexuality and reproduction um, around the world, but especially in the Middle East, you know, and we wanted to instead take a more sex positive lens to look at these things and to say, okay, how are people on the ground making do? Not what are the official rules, but what are people doing within those official rules? How are they working with or around or the system or subverting the system or doing both? It's really fascinating. I mean, that's what anthropology does so well, I guess, is looking at how individual experiences, what they can tell us about social rules and their power or their lack of power. Could you please give an example of how people on the margins deploy tactics to either circumvent or subvert the social rules and norms. I'll give you an example from my research with some sex workers in Egypt. And so this is a chapter in the book that's coming out, I guess in July, I think, hopefully, uh, with Vanderbilt University Press. It's an edited book called Sex in the, in the Middle East and North Africa that I co-edited with Angel Foster. So I was having this great conversation with a woman, well, it's a whole family. I'm talking to this woman who's maybe in her 30s. She's got some kids who are almost grown. She's in her late 30s. She's got kids who are, you know, grown like late teens and her mother and, and so on. So I'm doing an interview with them about hymenoplasty, you know, and about hymens. Sorry, could you please explain what hymenoplasty is for those who don't know? Sure. Right. So hymenoplasty is like, you could sort of call it hymen reconstruction technology. 
what it actually consists of is really different uh, in different, depending on the doctor who does it. But anyway, just some technique, because you can't actually restore a hymen or it's like flaps of skin that end up like in tatters and stuff. But, you know, if somebody who has had sex before marriage and then wants to get married and appear to be a virgin by bleeding on their wedding night, you know, they might go to a doctor who would perform these different techniques to make her bleed basically upon intercourse. I mean, there's, it's, it's problematic in so many ways because like 50% of people like women or people with vaginas do not actually like bleed upon first intercourse, you know, and, and some people don't even have hymens at all um, without ever having sex anyway. So it's, it's just such a complicated issue, but the, there is for sure, undisputedly a cohort of people who have had premarital sex and who are now getting married and who are really anxious that they appear to be virgins when they get married, right? Because they are expecting judgment either. Sometimes it's from their, from their partner, from their future husband, but sometimes it's, you know, they've had sex with their husband and now, but, but they're worried about what their in-laws will think or something. So um, I was talking to this family and they lived in Alexandria when I was interviewing them, but they were from a small village. And so they had these um, conservative village traditions that in many places have completely died out that hold that after the wedding night that you then go and you take the sheet of the bed and, and show people the blood on it as proof that the bride was a virgin, right? It's a pretty appalling idea, but I heard from so many people who had all these different techniques for like faking that you know like yeah, they yeah. use like pigeon blood or something um to fake it like you know like a couple who had been having sex for a while and now they're getting married but they know they're gonna have to show this damn sheet to the to the parents and so they'll collaborate together to spill some pigeon blood or menstrual blood or something onto the sheet anyway so I'm asking questions about hymenoplasty like who gets it and how and why and how do you find a doctor who will do it and or, you know, what other techniques do people use to, to feign virginity and, and hymen rupture and so on? And so I'm talking to this older woman who's like, uh, she starts talking about the bloody sheets from her daughter's wedding night. Um, she, she's like, hang on, Lisa. And she goes into her bedroom and she, she pulls like a Ziploc bag. She brings it out to me and she's like, look, this is it. It's purity. It's so beautiful. And she's like, she pulls it out of the bag and she's like, purity smells beautiful. And she takes this big sniff, like, she's like, oh, the sweet smell of purity. She's like, do you want to smell? And I'm like, yeah, of course. This is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm definitely going to smell your daughter's like virginal wedding night blood. So anyway, it just, it smelled like perfume. Uh, <laughs> you know, she'd obviously sprayed a lot of perfume on it anyway. So what was really funny about this whole thing, and, you know, she's giving this whole narrative about how purity is beautiful and talking about her daughter's virginity and so on. So what was really funny about all that is that her daughter was a sex worker and I knew that, and she knew that I knew that. And, you know, she sometimes acted as a kind of a pimp for her daughter, you know, make the connection. She would provide the aura of respectability by going 
with her daughter to meet a client. The daughter would go into another room with the client and the mother would sit outside in the, in the salon or lounge area or whatever so that nobody else outside would see this woman visiting a man alone and so on. And so I guess what I found fascinating was the way this discourse of virginal purity and respectability existed alongside this reality, which was not hidden. I mean, I knew she was a sex worker. A lot of people knew she was a sex worker. It wasn't that much of a secret. It existed along this reality of like not virginal purity and a woman who really, she was a very sexual being and she loved sex and she loved men and you know, she wasn't like being exploited. She, she really embraced what she did she doesn't call herself a sex worker. That isn't really part of the discourse for most people in Egypt. It was really this, you could say they're all sex positive, everybody in this whole family. And so for me, what was interesting was working out how do those, these two things coexist? <laughs> this vocal talking about this discourse of virginal purity and at the same time, like these people who talk openly about sexuality and embracing it and this woman who's had many, many different sexual partners, some of whom she temporarily married and some of whom she never married and, and so on. And her yeah, mother yeah. knew about all of them. And I don't know if I, it even makes sense to try to explain it, except to say that, that women are in, you know, in Egypt and I'm sure elsewhere are very aware of the demands, social demands around respectability, right? And men too, but in particular, I was interested in women because women are the ones who most face like the danger of stigma for embracing their own sexuality outside of marriage. So they're very aware of these discourses and aware of these demands that they be quote unquote respectable. And I guess what was interesting is the way they could say I'm respectable, you know, I'm a sex worker and I'm respectable. I demand that you respect me. That's how I interpret what was going on there. And I think that's really cool. And I like, as an anthropologist, I guess that's that's what I like to see is, is these interesting ways that people navigate around social rules and social norms to, to do their own thing and claim a position for themselves in society, even when it's a position that other people in society look down on. From what you described, hymenoplasty sounds like a really surreptitious practice. Is it even legal in Egypt? Yeah, in fact it is. But what's funny is that most people think that it isn't. So I went to interview religious authorities and doctors in addition to lay people. And, you know, I don't go to people and say, hey, have you ever had a high (laughs) menoplasty? Because a lot of people wouldn't like to talk about it. And that's really confronting. But instead, what I do is I go to people and I say, who do you think gets high menoplasty and why? And that tells me a lot about how they imagine the social world around them, right? And so I went to both doctors and religious authorities and asked them about high menoplasty. And what's really interesting is that most doctors, just like most of the lay people who I interviewed, believed that hymenoplasty was illegal. But in fact, when I went and talked to these high-ranking religious authorities at Al-Azhar University, and these are the ones who you know, issue pronouncements about what is considered religiously acceptable and so on. And when I talked to one doctor who was like, he had been on some ethics committee, I guess, for the, for the National Medical Association. 
something like that. He was an expert in that field. And they said, no, 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 you know, this is not illegal. Like this is a decision that's between a woman and God, right? Like it is, and it is not for a, a physician to decide whether or not to deny a person access to this technology. Because there were some people who said, like I would talk to, to doctors who would say, well, you know, it's not really a good idea, but if a woman comes to me and she said, you know, she gives me the story about how like she was raped or she had sex and now she repents of it and so on, then, then I would give her a high menopause, they would say, you know, creating these hierarchies of deservedness, right? Whereas what's really interesting is the religious authorities I talked to, and this is interesting, I guess, only because many of us Westerners have this stereotype that religious authorities in Egypt or anywhere in the Middle East are like the most conservative, you know, and the most oppressive of women's rights. No, it's exactly the opposite. Like these religious authorities were like, this is between a woman and God, and it is not the business of a medical doctor to decide whether or not she deserves to have this operation or procedure. If she comes to a doctor, the doctor should give it to her because it's not his business. It's not, he's not the moral arbiter here. And so I thought that was really fascinating. Every single lay person I talked to believed that hymenoplasty was illegal, except for one woman who was a very religiously devout and religiously well-educated person who yeah. had scrutinized these fatwas. A fatwa is just like a religious ruling about like the permissibility of something in Islam. And so she had studied the fatwas around this and she knew that it was actually uh, legal, but everybody else thought it was illegal. So I thought that was really fascinating too. All these people making assumptions about what religion says when like the highest religious authorities are like, wow, you guys are so judgmental. It's not your business to judge. It's God's business to judge. It is so interesting because it is such a common Western assumption that religion or religious authority or fatwa holds absolute control over the use of medical technology in the Islamic communities. Well, another thing about, like, fatwas in the popular discourse, you know, in the English language, fatwa, like, a lot of people assume that it's, like, it means death sentence. All it means is a non-binding religious opinion, right? So it's just, and non, non-binding is key, right? It's, like, it's an opinion. And then everybody's supposed to make their own decision about, what they think about that opinion and how valid they think it is. And different fatwas come out from different schools of Islamic jurisprudence, and they can all be in the same country. There can be, you know, multiple religious authorities who issue different, like, fatwas that have completely different interpretations of the same thing in one country. So, yeah, it's not nearly as authoritative, I guess, as we like to think. And what's really authoritative, as you can see from that anecdote, is people's assumptions and cultural, sociocultural norms around things, you know, which people buttress by saying, no, this is not like religiously acceptable, but they're saying that from a cultural perspective, not from the perspective of religious authority per se. I mean, look, there are plenty of cases where religious authorities collaborate with legal authorities to, to control people. But the way it happens is much more complicated than you think. Like, just like you see in the United States with conservative activists who are trying to change the law, you'll see the same thing in Egypt where some religiously conservative person decides to 
sue somebody for doing what they considered to be like abnormal. So for example, you know, there was a famous case of some university professor who filmed herself belly dancing. And, and so somebody took her to court over it saying that it was like improper. So it's not to say that conservative religious authorities don't have control over people. It's just that the ways that they do it are more complex than this idea of one person or a set of people deciding this is how it is, you know, and everybody has to deal with that. It's much more complicated. I think that concludes the interview. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. We look forward to reading your new book in July. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. That was it, Professor Lisa Wynn and me. Today's episode was produced by me, Claire Zhang, with help from other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Alex DeLoyer, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Shan Lu, and Ronan Chen. Our executive producer is Matthew Fong. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world, at thefamiliarstrange.com. The most recent blog is from our regular contributor, Dr. Holly Waters, on why white nationalists need to save the children. It's a really interesting piece, and you should check it out. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at tfstweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>